Don't underestimate how much expertise and knowledge you have in the area because if you really are interested in it and you're spending your time on it and you're developing your career around it, you're certainly much further along than almost everyone else around and you have a lot more to contribute than you probably realize. Hello and welcome to the Breathe Easy podcast hosted by myself, Dominic Pepper. In this podcast, we ask an expert clinician, teacher, or researcher to share their insights about career opportunities in the fields of critical care, pulmonary medicine, or sleep medicine. And for today, we go to Atlanta to discuss how to develop a research collaboration. So before we get started, uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Absolutely. So I'm Greg Martin. I'm a professor of medicine at Emory University in the Division of Pulmonary Allergy, Critical Care, and Sleep Medicine. Uh, I'm the Associate Division Director for Critical Care and the Director of Research for our for the Emory Critical Care Center, our center that we have here at Emory. I also lead uh, our clinical research network as part of our NIH CTSA research program. That's the Atlanta Clinical and Translational Science Institute, and I direct a program also called the Predictive Health Institute. So I wear a number of hats, and it's it's all been sort of a part of what I really enjoy about my career is the variety of things that I do. As you mentioned, you wear a number of hats. Could you tell us your story about how you came to hold these different positions and the path that you had to take together? Well, sometimes I wonder if it's serendipity, and I almost certainly feel that serendipity must have been part of it, as it may be for everyone. But Certainly, that's one of the roles, and I was fortunate, at least in my case, to have a really great mentor, and Dr. Gordon Bernard, who was and still is at Vanderbilt University, was really critical to my career development both back then, and he still provides guidance to me today. And I think that guidance really set the foundation for my career, and it shaped the way I think about things. Um, For instance, thinking about the interplay between clinical medicine and scientific inquiry. So... From Gordon's perspective, he got me very involved in studying things like fluid balance in the lungs of ARDS patients. That's from a clinical and physiological And that was really the area that I got most involved in in the early parts of my career and found very engaging because I, I was scientifically curious about ARDS, and I also had this interest in better understanding human physiology as it relates to, for instance, treatments and how we might better manage patients and so forth. So that was sort of my interest in clinical research and how I became more interested in that. But then combining that, I guess, from a serendipity perspective, excuse me, from a serendipity perspective, that led led me to begin studying in some other areas. And for instance, in a related area where I began exploring the epidemiology of sepsis. And that really began as a serendipitous quest to better understand the epidemiology of ARDS, thinking that sepsis was the most common cause and we really didn't know that much about it. So once I was at Emory, I met some colleagues at the CDC here in Atlanta who could analyze large-scale national databases and help to really provide these national estimates and think about the epidemiology of those diseases over time um, from a longitudinal perspective so we have a much better understanding of them. So so if if you had to look back and uh, think about your experiences as a resident or fellow, um, what particular experiences do you think impacted your decision to pursue pulmonary medicine or critical care? That's an interesting question. Looking back and seeing the pathway is almost certainly a lot easier than it was when I was going through it at the time. So I can now piece together a lot came to what a lot of what came together 
as the interests and skills that sort of frame my career as it exists now. For example, as a medicine resident at Vanderbilt, I had a strong interest in learning research, but as a clinical resident, I didn't really have that. That wasn't part of my training pathway, but I combined that sort of interest with what I was doing as a, as a clinical resident to begin thinking about uh, or studying a new diagnostic that appeared on the market, and that was, at the time, was troponin, which was a brand-new cardiovascular diagnostic. And so I ended up conducting one of the first studies looking at the predictive value of troponin for cardiac disease in patients with chronic kidney disease. And that was, it certainly taught me a lot about clinical research and how this conducted and how it may be analyzed and how it can be utilized. And fortunately for me, it also taught me that cardiovascular and the renal specialties were not for me. So it led me a little bit more to think about um, about pulmonary and critical care medicine as areas because I really, really enjoyed the things I mentioned in pulmonary physiology um, and particularly the variety of things that we see in critical care clinically. So once I was in my pulmonary and critical care fellowship, I began in learning a lot more about the clinical aspects of those specialties, but still being curious about how and why things happen. And it led me to meet some of the great people who were doing research at Vanderbilt. And ultimately, Gordon Bernard became my primary mentor and shaped both my early career and even today much of what I do. And we still stay in close contact, and he still serves as a strong mentor for me. Following fellowship, um, you were very active and involved at uh, at ATS, and you were on numerous committees and at times uh, the chairman of uh, several of those committees. Um, what resources were avail- available to you at ATS, and how did you utilize them to uh, their full advantage? That's a good question, and I, you know, it's to me, I've found each of the specialty societies that we often deal with as being very different, but often very, very engaging in different ways. And ATS particularly was very engaging to me, and I'd really have to say thank you to them. It's the staff and the members and everyone who reached out to me to get me involved. And one of the things that I really love is meeting new people and learning new things, and that's part of what I think engaged me initially. Um, I particularly love the sort of engagement in the critical care assembly, which was always very welcoming and also um, very interested in trying to foster the development of new members and and people in early phases of their career. And it really offered a lot of networking opportunities that I think were invaluable. So, for instance, um, uh, around the time that I was finishing my fellowship, so I was very, very junior, um, Gordon Bernard suggested that part of my that I may want to think about um, how to better understand from a national or international perspective how fluids are used or how fluids may be used, and particularly since my interest at the time was studying fluid balance in ARDS patients and how it might have a clinical impact, for instance, he suggested that that ATS might be a good venue for thinking about that, particularly as it might be um, an assembly project. So actually I, I ended up developing with Michael Mathay from UCSF a assembly project proposal that ultimately led to um, co-chairing that with Michael and forming an international group that developed an ATS consensus guideline. And that's something that, in retrospect, I probably never would have, or sorry, in, in prospective sense, I never would have conceived that someone as junior as I was would have been both um, sort of have the right scientific inquiry to think about what the appropriate topic is for a um, a major specialty society to have a consensus guideline published on a topic, but also to be able to f- to form the network of people from around the world who would really have the expertise to do that. And and obviously it's not me; it's people like Michael Mathay and Gordon Bernard who really helped to do that. But ATS 
ATS was a critical component of that in the sense that they really were very supportive and welcoming, and the Critical Care Assembly specifically was really sort of helpful in, in helping to form the application and what ATS can use and what kind of um, what kind of components of a assembly project will work well and what really the ATS society needs or what our clinical sort of needs are around the world for these kinds of things. So I think a lot of it was simply reaching out and getting me involved and, and having the infrastructure and the support for it. But it is, you know, if you think about that involvement perspective, it's also the things that I've done, like you mentioned, the awards committee and I worked or served or chaired on the IT and Web Information Systems Committee um, and the Critical Care Assembly Nominating Committee and then later chairing the Critical Care Program Committee. Those were all invaluable experiences to me, which get back to the ability to work and network with other people to help fulfill an area of interest or to learn new skills or really in the case of the Program Committee to help develop some, something for the Program Committee to really be able to develop something that we thought would be a valuable sort of set of learning tools for the international consensus or for the international committee, right? So that we we put together everything from the critical care perspective for the ATS International Conference so that um, we felt like we were putting together a program that would meet the needs of all of our critical care assembly members. And that's that's a great thing to do. And it's obviously working with a big group to make that happen. You mentioned that you felt pretty junior at the time and that the task might have been appeared daunting. Um, what skills, attributes did you think you used or that you'd think uh, that the next generation of clinical researcher would need uh, to succeed as you have done? Well, there's a lot of things, and every person is different, so it's probably going to depend a lot on their career. But one of the things that's clearly helpful is to have the right mentor. Um, and everyone needs a mentor, and I think often we underestimate how important that is, and maybe we don't even look to see. But if you look at anyone, um, whether they're you know, a person in junior high or high school or someone who's the president of a large corporation, they all have mentors, and they're people that help them to guide simple things like decision-making, but also their career, because everyone's career continues to evolve for many, many years beyond where they, wherever they are at a time. And so that's important. And clearly, for me, finding the right mentor was invaluable to me. It, it shaped the way I think of my career. It shaped the things that I do. It, it helped me to um, learn the right skills for the things that I do. But it also helped launch the things that I just mentioned, and it gave me um, the confidence that I would be able to develop something that would be valuable to ATS and valuable to the world and actually put that together and develop the right networking skills to develop it or the right networking skills to be able to complete that project. Um, the other one I think, at least from the clinical researcher or clinician researcher perspective, is just being curious and having scientific curiosity. And often that guides people into academic careers and whether it's as a researcher or as a clinician and teacher, I think that that scientific curiosity is something that really is invaluable when you begin to think about um, the application of, of evidence to clinical medicine and how do we take care of patients. But also, you know, if you are more on the on the side of thinking about research, is um, how do you frame the clinical problems that you're dealing with into a scientific question where you can actually answer that and come up with a way to study it, for instance, as a clinical research project. And the more you do of that, I think, you become experienced and comfortable with it, and essentially everything can become a research question, and it's it's really just sort of the mindset that evolves over time. And those are the kinds of things that often can be learned or at least front-loaded in learning 
through things like the Masters of Science in Clinical Research programs, where you're doing a master's degree program in clinical investigation or clinical research, and those are available in a lot of programs. And at Emory, for instance, we have a lot of our fellows and certainly even some of our junior faculty who will do that because they find that to be an invaluable tool for learning the skills that they'll want as a clinical researcher. You mentioned the, obviously the need to have a, a good research idea, but some people have good ideas, but they're unable to progress to uh, to, to the levels that uh, you have reached. What? How would you advise a young fellow, a young uh, junior faculty member, uh, to do in order to develop, uh, you know, research collaborations or networks, or to, to take this idea and, and and make it into something a lot bigger? So one thing is sort of what we've touched on already, which is certainly using the professional societies. And the people who are actively engaged in the professional societies are often there and they're engaged because they really like to be involved and helping other people. So ATS, for instance, has tremendous networking um, tools and assets that can be used by anybody for people who are still in training or for people who are early in their career and even for people who are later in their career. And I think that's that's incredibly valuable. And again, every society is a little bit different. There are the Society of Critical Care Medicine and the College of Chess Physicians have different meetings and different networking tools and different members who sometimes can be useful depending on what your interests are and where you're trying to go with your career. The other one, as you might guess from what I've said, is having a, a mentor. And I think the one thing is make sure you're utilizing your mentor. So picking a mentor and finding the right mentor can be really important. And sometimes even changing mentors is the right thing to do. As your career evolves or your interests change, you want to make sure that you're finding the right mentor and using that mentor to your full capacity um, to really do that. The other thing that I would say, and it's it's maybe implicit in what I said about the consensus guideline process that we went through, is don't be afraid to reach out to other people around the world because you'll often find that they're a lot more engaged and interested in, in working with you or helping you than you ever would have thought from someone who may just be reaching out to them without any known connection. Um, but also use your mentor for that and even use the professional societies for that. That's often a way to reach out to people but I think you'd find that they're much more interested and engaged than you would have guessed. And finally, the last thing that I tell people, tell our um, fellows and junior faculty and others, is don't underestimate your knowledge. So the people who are, for instance, doing research where you're focusing on a specific area of clinical or even basic research, we often underestimate our level of expertise or knowledge in that. And that's something that, that was told to me very early in my career is the point was made that if I'm studying fluid balance in clinical patients who have ARDS, there's a limited number of people around the world who who really think about that every day as something that they're academically engaged in and scientifically curious about that. And so if you're trying to develop a career and develop research collaborations and other things, don't underestimate how much expertise and knowledge you have in the area because if you really are interested in it and you're spending your time on it and you're developing your career around it, you're certainly much further along than almost everyone else around, and you have a lot more to contribute than you probably realize. Um, you've recently, for a long time, you've been involved in the field of uh, personalized sepsis management, um, and some see this as a field that will persist in the next 10 to 15 years. How do you believe the field will look like in 10 to 15 years, and what should young investigators be thinking of uh, um, in terms of projects or uh, ideas? 
I love these kinds of questions because my general thinking on predicting the yeah. future is that it's impossible, which makes the answering the question really easy because yeah. anything I say is almost certainly going to be wrong. But the real answer here is that you have to be thinking about things that don't necessarily apply to the way we think now. And so if you said, you know, I'm going to take what I know about personalized, sorry, if I'm, if I'm going to take what I know about sepsis and then think about um, the automated driving skills that are used at Tesla, the predictive analytics that come out of Google or something else, those are the ways that I think we need to be thinking about this. It's not that there's something already existing in healthcare or in sepsis that's really going to change the way we do things. It's really thinking about the things that exist outside of healthcare and the new developments within healthcare that are not specific to sepsis, like our knowledge of the microbiome, our ability to do predictive analytics for healthcare events and again sort of predictive health kind of activities. Those are the kinds of things that are really going to take hold. We know they already exist. We know they're already moving along. The question is how are they going to be applied? And so if you try to envision what sepsis management might look like in another 5, 10, 15, or 20 years, it's almost certainly going to be much more individualized in how we do our assessments of monitoring and perfusion and risk for organ dysfunction and management of the different sort of incipient conditions that occur during sepsis. Those are the things that are very, very difficult to predict because it's almost certainly going to involve the application of new technologies that may well come from outside of healthcare and how we're going to use that. And it's um, the one thing that I feel fairly confident about is that it's going to involve large-scale amounts of data and the analysis and use of those data in order to help manage those patients. And uh, a recent topic that's arisen is uh, the effect of machine learning. And um, there have been some who have said that machine learning may be a great thing. Um, we is able to process information really, really quickly. But one of the downsides is that we may end up uh, doing things where we actually don't know what's happening, but it's it's happening. Um, did you think that may happen in sepsis? Or um... I think it's certainly possible. I mean, machine learning is has a lot of power, and it certainly it it seems very likely that machine learning will be part of the approach to individualized patient care. And so, if you think about how we might apply that in sepsis, the ability to take real time data and analyze it and use algorithms that are being either Actively developed or ongoing, sort of evolved or, or being actively evolved, that kind of thing is where we need to go for individualized patient care decisions. And sepsis is a real challenge there because there's so many different moving parts at one time that it makes it more difficult. But you know we have we have really strong groups who are interested in this. I mean, there's groups who have incredible, um, incredible sort of scientific talent who, you know, on the on the basis of individuals who are trying to figure out how to predict um, using the genome and the microbiome and, and the metabolome as ways to predict the immune response and better understand how therapeutics might be used. But we're also getting to the point of having so much better computing power. So, for instance, the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory has incredible computing power and is thinking about how to apply that in healthcare. When you begin to take those kinds of national resources and think about how they can be used for predictive analytics and modeling diseases, that allows us to really push the, the barriers for where we're going to go with individualized patient care and real-time analytics and even, as you say, machine learning, which could be used for hopefully in all the good ways to really help us provide the timely care that you need in something that's a time-sensitive disease like sepsis. 
A very big thank you to Dr. Gregory Martin for joining me. And thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.